Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. You're listening to Forgotten Dynasty, an oral history of the Baltimore Colts. Written and produced by me, Jake Luke, this podcast is presented by SB Nation's Baltimore Beatdown as a Baltimore Beatdown podcast limited series. Constructed through thorough research and one-on-one interviews, much of what you are about to hear will be cited in the show's description. Special thanks to Jack Gilden, Bill Curry, and Keith Mills for their time and to NFL Films, NFL Network, ESPN, and others for the supplemental audio that you'll hear. This podcast is dedicated to the city of Baltimore, its great sports fans, and to the memory of Chris Wessling, who inspired me to see the world of sports in a more unique way. Episode 3, The New Era. As the 1960s turned into the 1970s, the world was in a precarious position on all manner of issues. The Vietnam War was raging, protests broke out across the U.S., some of them quelled in brutal fashion, such as at Kent State University where four people were killed, and the general sentiments of chaos and uncertainty that belied the end of the 1960s for many reasons still lingered into the new decade. If the mid to late 60s were suburban kids realizing they could let their hair down and live a fun-filled life as hippies or some sort of partying adjacent facsimile to what hippies actually stood for, the beginning of the 70s was a stark reminder for those people, and of course the rest of the world, that there comes a time in life when you have to get your stuff together and manage your problems like an adult. Chapter 6. Redemption at a Cost Carol Rosenblum had a handful of problems on his own that he was dealing with at this time. Fresh off of a disappointing season that was in direct succession to the most devastating loss in franchise history, the one thing he could always hang his hat on, that is a good on-field product, was maybe starting to wane a little bit for the first time since the end of the Weeb Eubank era. More importantly, the man he had handpicked to replace Eubank and take the Colts to the next level in Don Shula had just bolted from Baltimore to the warm shores of Miami for a cushy roll with the Dolphins. Also on the docket for him to deal with were some relatively important issues that can largely be summed up by the loss of goodwill between him and the city of Baltimore. In the 20 or so years since the Colts' profile began to rise, and with them his, Rosenblum had begun to enjoy his newfound fame and wealth in many different ways. That included golf, vacations, and living the high life with his high-roller buddies, many of whom were from New York and Florida. These were two places Carroll himself became very fond of, choosing to spend much more of his time in either Miami or Manhattan versus his hometown. 
There's of course nothing wrong with this on the surface, but it could be one of the root causes for why it was around this time that Carroll seemingly began to lose touch with the people of Baltimore. This was underscored by certain moves that he made, such as hiking up preseason game tickets to full price, which drew the ire of fans and media alike. His once great relationship with the press began to fray a bit as well, both due to some of the actions he had begun to take, similar to the ticket price situation, but also because of the team's results, both in and after Super Bowl III. Baltimore was a small town with a small, tight-knit media scene, and it was one that wasn't bashful about rooting for the teams they covered, not to mention it made their jobs easier when things were going well. As Rosenblum became a jet-setting, celebrity-adjacent owner and the Colts' championship drought stretched further and further on, Baltimore media became less and less impressed with the man who helped bring winning football into the fold for the town. It wasn't just the media, either, as Rosenblum also began to clash with the city leadership around this time. Memorial Stadium, with all its charm and the tremendous nickname of the world's largest outdoor insane asylum, had become outdated. Certain aspects of it were in disrepair, and its age began to show in comparison with other stadiums that had begun to crop up over the years, as the profile of the NFL had begun to grow. Carroll had yet to be able to take advantage of said profile in this regard, as he tried multiple times to get a new stadium built, or at least have some improvements pushed through on Memorial that were largely rejected by the city fathers for varying reasons. With eyes on a new stadium, either in Baltimore or elsewhere, Rosenblum was facing roadblocks at every turn, and as the 70s began, it was a major source of consternation for him. But in the meantime, his more pressing issue was a pissed-off fan base and the vacancy at head coach. Ahead of the 1970 season, he turned to an interior hiring option. For an organization that had changed regimes seven years prior, you would think it would have been tough to find a holdover from the previous era. But in 1970, Carol Rosenblum had that in Don McCafferty a longtime coach with the Colts who had gotten his start with the club in 1959 under Weeb Eubank as an assistant after coming over from Kent State. After Weeb's ousting in 1962, Shula liked what he saw in McCafferty enough to keep him in the building on their staff. Their relationship developed to the point that Shula entrusted him with the role of offensive coordinator in 1963, making him the architect of some of the best football we ever saw from not just Johnny Unitas, but even a guy like Earl Morrill, who had no track record of consistently good play prior to 1968. With a resume that spoke for itself, it seemed a shoo-in that Carroll should turn to McCafferty to lead the Colts into the 1970 season as their head coach. And not to be one to make a rash outside hire, he did exactly that. He was a great coach, a great choice for them. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for McCafferty, he was a little bit older when he finally got his opportunity but he had overseen the Colts offense through all those historic seasons, both under Eubank and under Shula. He was a holdover from Eubank's days. So he had worked on the Colts offense, even going back to the late fifties when they were winning the titles. Uh, he and Johnny Unitas got along very well together. They liked each other very much. Not only was his track record in terms of statistics, a great reason for the hiring, but his relationship with Unitas that Jack mentioned was a big factor as well. Not just Unitas, but pretty much all the players. In fact, his son, Luke McCafferty, reflecting on his career some 30-odd years later in a Baltimore Sun article, gave some insight into the even temperament that he was known for. They gave him the name Easy Rider because he was a soft-spoken guy, he said. But I can tell you from personal experience that he might have been soft-spoken, but he carried a big stick. He was a disciplinarian, but within a certain realm. He wouldn't give you a swat in the back of the head, but he'd let you know in so many ways that this was not the right thing to do. And that's the way he went about his coaching. He treated the guys like they were grown men. That was a nice compliment to somebody like Shula, who was much harder on his players and unafraid to buck the praise in public, punishment in private tact that other coaches tended towards. 
This was probably why Shula and McCafferty worked so well together over the years, and also why he'd proved to be the exact right hire in the shadow of a successful but tumultuous last several years under Shula. Ahead of one of his first practices with the Colts, McCafferty addressed the media. This afternoon, we're just going to start out with a regular practice and play catch-up football mentally for him. We're going to throw a lot at him, and these are men who've been through this before, and they, it shouldn't be too much problem for him. There's nothing concrete to grab onto there in terms of what he was planning schematically, but with the metronomic tempo to his voice and clear, easygoing tone, McCafferty was going to be a far cry to what this group of players had become accustomed to. Linebacker Mike Curtis recalled the calming influence to be a big reason why Easy Rider ultimately got the gig. Well, I think he might have been a salve, kind of calm things down a little bit. You didn't want to have a, um, a stone thrower or a, a whipper comes up beating up people. If Shula was going to leave, bring somebody that had a calming influence. Bill Curry and Colt star defensive end Bubba Smith reflect incredibly fondly on McCafferty and the unique approach that he took to the head coaching position. Mac would do some things that other head coaches would have never done. He would sit down and play a hand of poker and, and throw in a couple of bucks. He was such a nice guy that you didn't want to play bad and disappoint him to a point where he could possibly lose his job. But Curry is also quick to point out what Luke McCafferty remembered about his father, that despite his cool and collected nature, he wasn't just letting the inmates run the asylum. There was a level of calculation beneath his calm surface that made it clear he was every bit qualified to take over the job. Some of the players on the team thought he was lax. He wasn't lax. We practiced the same way. We practiced just as hard as we did with Shula. We wouldn't have won all those tight games had we not worked hard. The most important point here, one that's been alluded to, was Mac's relationship with John Unitas. If Unitas and Shula were two thoroughbred horses penned into a corral amidst a successful but incredibly turbulent partnership, McCafferty was the low-key but dialed-in jockey who knew his thoroughbred's quirks and strengths perfectly enough to guide him to victory, similar to Eubank. Not one to just dole out compliments willy-nilly, Johnny Yu once said of McCafferty, he wasn't a holler and screamer type guy. That's probably why you never heard much about him. You don't get too much attention unless you're a holler and a screamer type guy raising hell all the time with somebody. But he did things just very quietly. He was just a nice, nice man. Unitas doesn't mention Shula by name there, but that feels like equal parts love for McCafferty and a shot across the bow at his old sparring partner who preceded him. If it was their rocky relationship that prevented Unitas and Shula from ever reaching the promised land together, the legendary quarterback would have to hope that a newfound partnership with somebody who was a bit more his tempo would prove to be what he needed to finally do so again, as he was entering his age 37 season. Ahead of the 1970 season, the NFL-AFL merger, which had essentially already taken place, became official. As a result, the two leagues became conferences the National Football Conference and the American Football Conference. In order to equalize the numbers out, three original NFL teams joined the newly minted AFC. The Cleveland Browns, Pittsburgh Steelers, and of course, the Baltimore Colts. The ever-growing sport of football now had 26 teams playing in the new NFL, and this would be a big change for the Colts, who would now be going up against a new cluster of teams from the old AFL. As a result of their NFL pedigree and veteran roster, the Colts were considered a preseason favorite in the new group heading into the 70 season. 
One of these old AFL teams was the San Diego Chargers, who they faced in Week 1. In a back-and-forth effort in which Unitas rallied the squad late, Baltimore was facing a field goal to win situation. They turned to rookie wide receiver Jim O'Brien, who was also the team's place kicker, to boot them to a win. This was likely a cause of consternation for some, as O'Brien joined the team with a long head of hair and a big mouth. On a team full of old-school veteran players, this wouldn't prove to be an immediate fit. Mike Curtis, the team's de facto throwback brick shithouse at linebacker, referred to O'Brien as a beatnik and a hippie, perhaps a result of getting beaten by a similar character in Joe Namath in Super Bowl III. Regardless, O'Brien proved himself fit in that game against the Chargers in Week 1, knocking home his third field goal to win the Colts their first game of the year. Jim O'Brien, a rookie, who has booted two field goals in this game already. Paul holds out the hand. There's the snap. The kick is up. It's long enough. It is good! O'Brien kicks a field goal to win the game 16-14 at the buzzer. Those same veterans are hugging him all over the field. If you produce, uh, they'll take you in. The voice you just heard was Ernie Accorsi, who was in the Colts organization for some time up to that point in public relations, and would prove himself to be an instrumental figure in it not much later. He and the rest of the Colts then bore witness to a Week 2 blowout loss to another old AFL team that had risen to prominence in the last year, following in the footsteps of the Jets in 1968. The next week, in the second Monday night game ever played, we just got obliterated by the defending world champion Kansas City Chiefs. We had not sodded the infield yet. And in the first quarter, they scored 30 points towards the infield, which was the close end of the stadium. And all I remember is dust flying all over the place and our defensive backs trying to chase their receivers into the end zone. After barely getting by San Diego on the leg of Jim O'Brien and then being thoroughly manhandled by another former AFL team, albeit the defending Super Bowl champion in the Chiefs, many began to question whether the Colts had the horsepower they would need to win a championship. With an aging roster and a new head coach in place, it wouldn't seem out of the question that they would continue their fall back towards the pack that began in 69 with the post-Super Bowl III malaise. But the old dogs didn't have any quit in them, and the predictions of their demise would prove to be greatly exaggerated. In a knee-knocker of a Week 3 game, Unitas and Morrill, who were both injured, shared snaps throughout. With a direct order from McCafferty not to throw the ball near the end of the contest, Unitas took that as a challenge throwing a long touchdown strike to Roy Jefferson to ice it, returning to the sideline to face an unusually annoyed easy rider. But whether the feedback from his coach was good or bad, the golden arm would never be phased. United takes the snap, the handoff, fake handoff to Maitland, pass downfield to Roy Jefferson, he goes it for 30 to 25, he's going in! And the coach broke it open quickly with a 55-yard scoring play. That was the famous close-up of McCafferty, I don't think... 100% 100% seriously cursing John as John walked to the sidelines. But that was John. Whatever you do, John, don't throw the ball. That's exactly what John was going to do. That would prove to be the story of that regular season for Baltimore. In their late 30s and nicked up to start the year, Unitas and Morrill were well past their primes. But by hook and by crook, McCafferty and the Colts found a way to get it done with what they had week after week following the loss to the Chiefs. United takes the snap, goes back to throw, looks downfield, sets, fires long, into the end zone, it's completed! There was a whole different football team, an entirely different way of doing things. We were decimated. We lost our entire starting backfield. We lost Tom Maddy, our best football player on offense, the very first quarter of the very first game. So now we got a rookie running back, Norm Boulash, who might 
carry the ball and run 18 yards, and most likely he's gonna fumble every other time. We lose our fullback, Jerry Hill. Our quarterbacks are both nicked, Unitas and Morrill, but we had these weapons. We had Eddie Hinton and Roy Jefferson at wide receiver, both of them great athletes. That's when you started seeing a lot of trickery. That's when you started seeing gadgets. The main job of an offensive play caller is to get the football in the hands of your best players maximum number of times. They rode that momentum to a six-game winning streak, playing an especially meaningful game in the midst of it against the New York Jets. It will be the first time since Super Bowl III that the two teams met, and the Colts were in no uncertain terms out for blood. We knew what was going to happen. Everybody knew what was going to happen on the team. I imagine they knew it too. We're going to kick their ass. Goes back to throw on first down, and it's batted down by Otto Smith, and then intercepted by Jerry Logan going into the end zone for a touchdown. I could beat the Jets a thousand times by a hundred points. It would never make up for that lost Super Bowl. But this being the first game coming to play the Jets, I just wanted to kill them. They were back to throw again. This game, to me, is what turned the whole season around. I think it basically put us in the driver's seat. And I think from that point on, we were a different team. Another highlight on their schedule was an old friend, or foe, depending on how you look at it, coming to town in week seven. I've missed Baltimore, and I've missed the fans on 33rd Street. And I'm sure I'm going to get a different experience with the fans on 33rd Street tomorrow. That was Don Shula whose Dolphins were on the docket for Baltimore that week. In a show of class for their former coach, fans put together a ceremony for him where he was awarded flowers and a show of respect for all he had done for them. Needless to say, though, Carol Rosenblum's mentality that week would be anything but friendly. If not to get revenge on Shula for their own purposes, the players and coaches seemed determined to kick some ass that week to keep the boss happy. It's glad to see he was back in town because I like Don a lot. It wasn't going to impact how I played the game, whether I would become more aggressive because Don's back in town. I wasn't into that. Maybe Rosenblum might be more aggressive or talk more aggressively or all the, the fans might be hissing and throwing tomatoes. I think McCafferty might have said something like, you know, CR would really like to win this one. <laughs> and I think everybody would laugh. Baltimore won in a 35-0 route, and Memorial Stadium was ablaze with excitement as that, followed by another win over Green Bay the next week, had their Colts at 7-1. The streak didn't last, though. Following a bizarre tie with the Buffalo Bills, the Colts traveled down to Miami to take on the Dolphins for a second time by virtue of both teams residing in the AFC East division. This time, Shula and his squad were ready, handing the Colts a 34-17 loss, drawing the ire of Rosenblum and throwing their run of success to start the year into some question. To make matters worse, they had a date with the Chicago Bears, one of the most physical teams in the league to surely put the Colts' aging quarterback group to the test. Lucky for them, though, the elder statesman proved up to the challenge. And five minutes are gone in the game. Unitas has already thrown three interceptions, and we're down 17 to nothing. Fires up the middle, and again it's intercepted! If you have to describe the difference 
in good and great quarterbacks and the the undefinable ingredient that the great ones have it starts with total amnesia from what happened two seconds before that's the classic United's game John Unitas never changed expression and you can't tell whether he's thrown a touchdown pass an interception or just gone to a Sunday school picnic you can't tell he never changes we keep playing we keep plugging and as was our want, we managed to scramble around and find a way to get back in the game. Well, I start to draw, that might have held him. Did you open on it, too? No, I wasn't open. No, I'm just saying that I can beat The last offensive play of the game is a double zone with a busted coverage, and there's John Mackey alone. He was not the primary receiver. And here's the other thing I remember. John Unitas runs off the field. He still hasn't changed expression. Business as usual. And that's why we were able to hang in there and win these difficult games. After the rough and tumble win over Chicago, the Colts called a players-only meeting to sort through some of the issues they had been having in the previous three weeks. Their start indicated they could be Super Bowl contenders, and a tie, a blowout loss, and a scrape by winning Chicago on the back of some vintage but increasingly rare John United's magic wasn't going to be enough to get them there. Mike Curtis made as much clear in a speech he gave to the team, where he explained that he'd be watching his teammates, and anyone who wasn't doing their jobs up to his standards were going to receive an ass-kicking, courtesy of him. Knowing Curtis, that's something they'd have been smart to avoid. And avoid it they did. The Colts closed the regular season out in style with three straight wins after the winning Chicago, putting them at 11-2-1 entering the AFC playoffs. Back in the tournament for the first time since losing the Super Bowl in heartbreaking fashion, Baltimore had every right to be nervous. But their fans, as always, felt like the energizer they needed to push them forward. Memorial Stadium, despite Carol Rosenblum's growing issues with it, was the mecca of pro football fandom in its day and playing in front of the world's largest outdoor insane asylum in the 1970 playoff run is something Bill Curry holds in serious reverence. The magic of the Baltimore Colt relationship with the people, it wasn't just the city of Baltimore, it was the state of Maryland. That magic has never been reproduced anywhere else. And here I am all these years later, I get goosebumps. I get teary-eyed because I would be the first player introduced. For reasons I've never understood, the center was the first guy introduced. Introducing the offensive unit of the Baltimore Colts. At center, number 50 from Georgia Tech, Phil and I never knew who was going to be standing in that dugout. I'd come out the end of the tunnel, and there's Jack Nicholas standing there because he's a buddy of Tom Maddie's. They were Ohio State. So I shake hands with Jack Nicholas, and that fired me up just to run out on the field. It was not like any other experience I've ever had anywhere else in my sport. But it was a beautiful thing to be a part of. I'll never, ever forget it.
Baltimore's fans had become seasoned and established as some of the best in their near 20-year run at the top of the NFL ranks, and this crowd was hungry to taste Super Bowl glory for the first time. They made quick work of their first playoff game against the Cincinnati Bengals. The handoff goes to Robinson, sweep to the right side. He is in trouble. Mike Curtis is there and runs him out of bounds at the 30-yard line, a loss of five. Winning 17-0 in the divisional round. In the AFC Championship, an AFL mainstay, the Oakland Raiders, came to Baltimore. The two teams would face off for a chance to go to the Super Bowl, but according to Colts star Bubba Smith, the Raiders were convinced the first ever AFC Championship was theirs for the taking prior to kickoff. When Oakland came in town, they came in packed to go to the Super Bowl. George Atkinson said, yeah, we're going to leave here and, and go to Miami. I said, what are y'all going to, uh, to the game? You got tickets? I said, because, man, we're going to beat the hell out of y'all. And I broke free right away and hit LaMonica, and he went down, and that brought George Blander. Every time you got a chance to take a lick on him, take it. And I think George was around 43 at the time. His body is not ready to take those licks. They would start saying, kill Bubba, kill. Kill Bubba, kill. And it got loud. Your heart started beating faster. You were ready to to snap this guy's neck if necessary. Blanda has the Raiders set now. Takes the snap. Drops back to throw. Looks downfield. Oh, he's got it! Bubba and the defense were putting on a show. But with the Colts ahead by only three late in the game, it was time for a legendary player to do what he did best. Throw the ball and make a play to win the game. Unitas is set. Drops back to throw. He's got the time. He fires the pass. It is complete to Perkins at the 45. That was the touchdown that gave us a 10-point lead and clinched the game, and the trunks went back to Oakland, not to Miami. Hey, we're playing great, baby. Sweet, sweet. Right on. Right, let it go, baby. Let's go, baby. The Baltimore Colts, seven seconds to go, are the AFC champions. There's the end of the ball game, and it's on to the Super Bowl now. John Sandusky, whom Mac had moved over to coach the defensive line, but formerly had been my offensive line coach, big John Sandusky came over and just hugged me. And I remember it was terrible because he hadn't shaved, and he scratched my face big time. But it was, it was a wonderful moment. There was a lot of emotion after we beat Oakland. We were going back to the Super Bowl, and maybe because of all the buildup of the previous two years and the embarrassment, I don't remember anything that anybody said. I do remember that there was more affection and emotion that day than any other day. After a down season following a shockwave-inducing loss in Super Bowl III, Baltimore was back in the big game to again be played in the Orange Bowl in Miami. Thanks to the smooth, guiding hand of Don Easy Rider McCafferty and just enough from his ragtag duo of the bullpen boy and the aging legend at quarterback, 
the Colts would have their shot at redemption in the Super Bowl, and they would be fully aware of all the narratives heading into it, whether they liked it or not. The matchup was interesting partially for that reason. The Colts were set to face off against the Dallas Cowboys, who were making their first ever Super Bowl appearance, but were fresh off of several straight years of losing in the postseason as well. They were an interesting parallel to the Colts in this game for many reasons, one of which was that they were coached by Tom Landry, who after being befuddled by Johnny Unitas and the Colts offense in the 1958 and 59 NFL championship games as the Giants defensive coordinator, had taken over the Cowboys head coaching job in 1960. Since then, he had proven himself to be similar to Don Shula in that he had been a relatively young hire who brought Dallas plenty of immediate success without a ring to show for it. An innovator in his own right, Landry popularized the 4-3 defense and would ultimately prove to be one of the longest tenured coaches in NFL history, holding his role with the Cowboys all the way until 1988. But in 1970, he couldn't have predicted that type of job security. And as a result, he and the Cowboys were equally as desperate as the Colts to get it done on the big stage. Or maybe almost as desperate. We were desperate to win and to look good doing it. We didn't want to just win. We wanted to win and be convincing. We felt like we were tougher than the Dallas Cowboys. We felt like that they could not stay with us for four quarters if we went out there and took care of business, did not turn the ball over, played well in the kicking game, and just flat whip them physically. We thought we could do that. The two teams were a mirror image of one another, outfits that sported strong defenses and playmakers on offense that had to get by with a platoon at quarterback. For Unitas and Morrill, Dallas featured Roger Staubach and Craig Morton that season, with Morton getting the start in the Super Bowl because Landry felt he would adhere to the plays the coaching staff called for him. Staubach, of course, an all-time great, had more of a tendency to go off script due to confidence in his own abilities. Sound familiar? The game took place on January 17, 1971, with Baltimore favored by two and a half. But no amount of media favoritism or trash talk by the other team would have the Colts unprepared for this one. They went into it ready to rip, run, and roar their way to victory over a team they felt was inferior, and officially lay claim to what should have been theirs two years ago. But regardless of what they were, quote, ready to do, was irrelevant. What's the old saying about the best laid plans? Now, we didn't do any of those things. We didn't whip them physically. We didn't uh, take good care of the football. We didn't play well in the kicking game. We didn't do any of that stuff. The issue, in the eyes of Mike Curtis looking back on the game, is that the Colts had maybe over-prepared ahead of it. I think they were pressing too hard sometimes. They weren't relaxed going to the game. I wasn't relaxed. I think a lot of it because the guys put a lot of pressure on themselves to push harder for both sides. I think that's why it was a carnival. They psyched themselves up too hard, pressed early and often, and for a defensive-minded, ball-control team like Baltimore, that just wasn't going to work. Ironically, though, it was a big play through the air made by their teetering on the edge of over-the-hill Unitas that got them going in the game. Down 6-0 in the second quarter, following a sloppy first, John dropped back to pass and let one loose for wide receiver Eddie Hinton. What happened next was a stroke of very fortunate blind luck. John goes back to throw again. Sets up. Fires out left side. Taken by John. Off the fingertips of the intended receiver. Bounced into the hands of John Mackey and he goes in for the touchdown. It was a bad throw, high and behind Hinton, who barely managed to get a paw to it. It deflected in the air behind him into the waiting hands of tight end John Mackey, who with no one behind him was free to gallop to the end zone for a 75-yard score. All square at 6-6, thanks to the alert play from Mackey, you'd think it would be a formality that the Colts would now have the lead. But in a game that's since affectionately been referred to as the Blunder Bowl, that wouldn't be the case for them. 
There's the snap. The kick is blocked. It is no good, and we have a tie football game. Rookie wideout slash kicker Jim O'Brien, with the mop of hair and the cocky attitude, who was a hero in week one against San Diego, suddenly folded in a big moment. Ernie Accorsi recalls expecting there to be some issues in the kicking game, though, with O'Brien confiding in him prior to the game that the playing surface could prove to be an issue for him. My recollection, we had played one game in our history on artificial turf. So we're now at the practice the day before the game, which is nothing but a walkthrough. O'Brien did not have a good day of practice. He said to me, I hope they're not counting on me, Sunday. I said, why? He said, I can't kick on this stuff. He was a straight-ahead conventional kicker. He said, I take a divot like a seven iron, and I, it, if I try to, you know, the way I kick, my foot's bouncing into the ball, I'm kicking the top half of the ball. United sits Mackey for the touchdown. He misses the extra point. I mean, it's blocked, but it's low. So uh, you can imagine what my feelings were the rest of the day about the game coming down to Jim O'Brien. O'Brien's miss and the discomforting admission he had made to Accorsi about the AstroTurf was a cause of concern for the Colts, who had not looked good to open the game. Things were about to get worse, though. Shortly after that play, John Unitas went out to scramble in the open field and took a shot to the chest from Cowboys linebacker Leroy Jordan. He fumbled the ball away to Jethro Pugh at the Colts' 28-yard line, and the Cowboys quickly capitalized with a touchdown, putting them back in the lead 13-6. Following that series, the Colts ran back out onto the field on offense, hoping to rectify the Unitas mistake. Unfortunately for the old gunslinger, he only made things worse. On a duck of a pass that landed in the waiting arms of Cowboys defensive back Mel Renfro, Unitas took another shot to the ribs. This would be the one that would prove costly, and he was officially knocked out of the game for good. We felt terrible looking at John sitting over there holding his ribs. There was almost nothing that could get him out of a game, so we knew it was bad. I assumed that it punctured his lung because I didn't think anything else would get him out of the game. You had this feeling that you couldn't win this without Unitas. I mean, it, it was almost like this is his game. His injury kind of deflated me. Very shortly after that, I went to the field. I couldn't take it anymore. I've never done that before or since. Uh, and I just went to the bench. Now, I shirked my duties. I should have been in the press box, but I didn't care at that point. The all-time great, who had literally invented the idea of being a clutch quarterback taking over a championship game, and who defined toughness at a position that's become known for everything but being tough since, was out for the count. It was a devastating blow for Baltimore, who had just lost their practical and spiritual leader. Despite the fact that his best days were at that point behind him, Johnny Unitas represented everything it meant to wear a Colt uniform. And without him, finishing the job that started two years ago in a Super Bowl three game that he was counted on for late heroics and fell short seemed insurmountable. There was some poetry to it, though. Maybe not at the time, but certainly looking back. Why? Because in stepped the man who many pointed to as the reason why the Colts bombed out against the Jets in that game two years ago, in that very same stadium with the very same stakes. I'll try to the bullpen boy, Earl Morrill, who few had believed in to begin with, and much less since the debacle in Super Bowl III. Approaching the end of his career, similar to Unitas, and much of the rest of the Colts' aging roster, Morrill was now faced with what was likely his last shot to put the demons of that game behind him. Down 13-6 against a ferocious defense, the stage appeared set for him to do just that. With the Cowboys unable to do anything after intercepting Unitas, they punted to Morrill, who led the Colts on their best drive of the day inside the two-minute mark of the first half. They marched all the way to the Dallas three-yard line, but it was from there that Colts rookie running back Norm Boulash was stuffed for three straight plays. Perhaps caught up in the moment and trying to press too hard, as Mike Curtis suggested, and also spooked by Jim O'Brien's PAT miss, Don McCafferty elected to go for the touchdown on fourth. 
in incompletion by Morrill, sent the Colts back to the locker room with a 13-6 deficit at halftime. You wouldn't have blamed Morrill for thinking back to two years ago when he missed Jimmy Orr wide open in the end zone for a play that would have gotten the Colts going against the Jets prior to halftime. If he expected a storybook comeback in this game in which he rallied the troops and led the Colts to victory with a hot arm, he wouldn't get it. But thankfully for Baltimore, they wouldn't need it from him, as the supporting cast around him were proving themselves up to the task of keeping them in the game. In a third quarter that was an actual comedy of errors, the two teams traded fumbles to open, with Colts returner Jim Duncan coughing it up on the kickoff, a play quickly negated by Mike Curtis, who forced a fumble of his own on the Cowboys' offense, who were dangerously close to the end zone. From there, Morrill drove Baltimore into Dallas territory, getting stopped at the 44, and setting up O'Brien for a 52-yard attempt. As was the theme of the day, he promptly missed it, coming up short of the goalposts, but in a bizarre turn, Renfro of the Cowboys was back to return. But instead of doing so, he let it bounce to the one-yard line, thinking it would bounce further for a touchback. Dallas punted from out of their own end zone, and as the fourth quarter began, the Colts were again driving, still down 13-6. Opening the fourth quarter with the opportunity to really make something happen, Morrill instead did the opposite of that, making a mistake that could have proven fatal. After a 45-yard passing play to running back Tom Nowatzki to push Baltimore into the red zone, he threw an interception in the end zone to Cowboys linebacker Chuck Howley. With the clock on this one ticking further and further towards a Dallas victory by attrition, and with Morrill not showing any signs of life, it would seem that the Colts' chances of finally getting it done in the Super Bowl had again slipped through their grasp. But as would become clear, their rock-solid defense wasn't going to give up without a fight. Now our defense was only fifth in the league in total yards allowed. They were number two in points allowed. What does that mean? Here's what that means. You might get it inside our 20-yard line, but you're not going to get it in the end zone. And that's what happened to Dallas. Our defense goes out and stones them again and again and again, allows them one touchdown all day. That's amazing. They forced yet another punt from Dallas, and the Colts offense, again driving, again made a mistake, but this time in about as bizarre a fashion as you can imagine. The play was a designed flea flicker, where Morrill handed off to running back Sam Haverlack, who was supposed to pitch it back to him. But with the Dallas defense closing fast, he made a split-second decision to attempt a pass to John Mackey. It bounced off of Mackey's hands and miraculously landed in the waiting arms of Eddie Hinton, whose earlier drop had fallen into the hands of Mackey, which sprung him free for the Colts' only points of the game. Hinton snagged it and began sprinting for the end zone, with designs on doing the same thing Mackey had done to tie the game up at long last but it wasn't to be. He was caught from behind by Dallas defender Cornell Green, who stripped the ball from his hands as he approached the goal line. Six different players attempted to recover it, but it wound up bouncing through the back of the end zone for a touchback. Dallas, still up by seven, had the ball yet again from their own 20, after the Colts had written their magnum opus of mistakes in a game that was full of them. But as Curry hinted at earlier, Baltimore's defense, led by longtime renowned coordinator John Sandusky, just kept pounding away on the Cowboy offense. On the next possession, Colts safety Rick Volk picked off Craig Morton to again set Morrill and the offense up to do something. They finally did. Watching helplessly from the sideline, Unitas cheered on his buddy and Morrill, perhaps feeling all the nerves that every Colts fan did each and every time he dropped back in that game. He took the field from the Cowboys' three-yard line, in a position from where he had turned the ball over on downs earlier in the game. This time, though, he capitalized, and in what he would later call the play of the game, the Colts mercifully punched it into the end zone through Nowatzki on the ground. O'Brien's extra point was good, and all of a sudden, late on in a contest that looked like it had been the Cowboys to lose, the Colts had tied it up at 13-13. From there, the war of attrition continued as the Cowboys and Colts traded punts over the next two possessions. 
Dallas got the ball back on Baltimore's 48, with less than two minutes to go in the game. With less than two minutes left to go in the game, sitting pretty to march ahead for a game-winning drive. The Colts were staring certain defeat, embarrassment, and a lifetime of dirty looks from Carol Rosenblum and Baltimore right in the face. A hop, skip, and a jump into field goal range by Morton and the Cowboys would have been all it had taken for the crushing depths of the Super Bowl III loss to somehow find a new low. It would take a minor football miracle to avoid it, in fact. As luck would have it, in what would turn out to be the last big game for so many legendary faces of a legendary franchise, that miracle arrived. It did so in a fashion that everyone in that stadium had been accustomed to that day. A mistake. Two plays into the drive, Dallas committed a holding penalty on the 42-yard line. Since this was a spot foul at the time, it pushed them back 15 yards from there to their own 27. A play later, on 2nd and 35, with the clock waning dangerously on the game, Mike Curtis made what would turn out to be the play of his life. Second down and many, many yards to go. Morton rolls out to the right. Gets the pass away down the sideline. Intercepted by Mike Curtis at the 25, the 20. He intercepted Morton and returned the ball 13 yards to the Cowboys' 28-yard line. He likely could have taken it further, but describes in detail why he didn't think that would prove to be a safe proposition. The eyes of the Dallas offensive line was so had so much hate in them that I needed to get down quick because they're going to kill me if they ever got a hold of me. So I just danced around a little bit to avoid contact and then fell down. He held on to the ball like the weight of a franchise's fragile morale depended on it and got down with just nine seconds left in the game. Just enough time to set up the man who would suddenly shoulder the outcome of this game for the Colts one way or another, Jim O'Brien. Having already missed a PAT and a long field goal attempt, any Colt fan who claimed they were especially confident that O'Brien would be true from 32 yards in a situation like that is lying. This was especially true of Ernie Accorsi who after making his way down to the sideline from the press box, watched on in a combination of delirium and dread as the rookie kicker ran out for the potential game winner. Now, our bench is jubilant, but knowing what I knew, having heard what O'Brien told me, his, his words were, I hope they don't count on me Monday. Well, who are they going to count on? I mean, this th if this comes down to a field goal, what are we going to do? As nervous as of course he was in the moment, knowing what he knew about O'Brien made Bubba Smith a little more bullish. Like Cool Hand Lou. I never saw him panic in nothing. Playing cards, uh, uh, in practice. So I didn't feel like he was going to panic then. Bill Curry reflected on the moment as one of intense anxiety, but also of belief that this time things would be different if the Colts just had a little faith. If you don't believe in God, or if you don't believe in prayer, you've never been on the sideline of a Super Bowl. We did have some prayer circles. We had some deeply devout guys who didn't always come off as such. Nine seconds showing on the clock. The Cowboys and the Colts all tied up at 13 to 13. Nervous as a course he was, he reflected back on something. A move by Don McCafferty that he had at first questioned, but suddenly in that moment realized had been a pure stroke of genius. We had done something that very few teams had done. We had picked up a player named Tom Goode. He was an old, tough guy from Mississippi. He was really beat up, could hardly run, had been a center. But 
in Don McCaffrey's words, was the greatest snapper I have ever seen. Well, he's, even to this day, I would say that. I mean, they were lasers coming back there. That's all he could do. And I'm thinking, why are we carrying goo just to snap the ball? This is before we know that today, you wouldn't dare have your center snap the ball. You, everybody's got a snapper. Some teams have two snappers. And I'll never forget, when I saw that ball come back tomorrow, my first thought was, thank God we got Tom Goot, because the snap was perfect. The snap from Tom Goot, a cast-off who Don McCafferty showed faith in as a necessary piece, was a beauty. And there was some beauty in the fact that it was corralled and held down by Earl Morrill, a man who had been searching for a home for the better part of two decades in football and had finally found one in Baltimore. He had performed poorly, along with the rest of his team, in the shameful defeat of Super Bowl III, and after replacing Unitas in Super Bowl V, he hadn't been much better. But now, the man known as Ragarm just had to get one thing right. Put the ball down and let O'Brien get a good kick behind it. In what could have been his last meaningful game with the Colts, he came through in the clutch. A perfect snap, a perfect hold, and it all came down to young Jimmy O'Brien. The kick is up and is long enough in. I think you got to give a lot of credit to Jim O'Brien. He not only saved our Super Bowl rings, but he saved his locks that day because once we got inside, Billy Ray Smith said, boys, we can't do it. We can't cut the kid's hair off. We had planned on doing just that. It was going to be fun. So uh, we had a little ceremony and told Obi he had saved his hair. And the Baltimore Colts have won the Super Bowl. The lasting image of the game is a memorable one. After booting the game winner through the uprights, the diminutive O'Brien turns and runs toward the Colts' sideline, jumping in the air repeatedly, throwing up both arms toward the heavens in celebration, his floppy dark hair bobbing up and down with him out of the back of his helmet. He's followed closely by Morrill and his teammates and met by a throng of screaming coaches and players at the sideline in an embrace that can best be characterized as beautiful chaos. Even in the 1971 standard definition footage, you can see the emotions plastered across their faces. Wide-eyed, delirious, happy, but maybe above all, relieved. Under the crucible of all the pressure that was brought about by disciplinarian Don Shula and the weight of expectations that playing for him carried, the Colts had finally freed themselves from that yoke and made a new future of championship-caliber success under the easy rider, Don McCafferty. His cool hand, combined with an ass-kicking defense and a steady, if unspectacular, season by Johnny Unitas, had gotten the Colts back to the promised land. You would think that looking back on the experience, that players would be over the moon about finally getting it done, and maybe achieving some redemption for their loss to the Jets. But in listening to Curry, Smith, and Curtis on the America's Game documentary, where much of this audio is derived from, they unfortunately don't entirely seem to feel that way looking back. Super Bowl V, um, this ring right here, that um, emblematic of our return to glory, dominance, all that sort of thing, is the most mixed sense of achievement that I've experienced in my career. In all my years, Super Bowl V evokes from me a sense of having not carried our share of the load. I didn't feel redemption. I didn't feel like we went down there and took care of business, conducted ourselves on the field like champions. We turned the ball over seven times. And after enduring all the slings and arrows of the previous two years, you would have thought we would have been near perfect that day. There is the snap. The kick is up and is long enough. It is. Now, 
When he kicks the field goal, I got depressed. And the Baltimore Colts and I knew I was supposed to be feeling good. Finally did it, world champions. I wasn't feeling that way. I couldn't really feel as happy as I wanted to feel because I, I was supposed to look at my other ring from Super Bowl three and say, well, I got two and I couldn't do it. That loss, crazy, almost 40 years ago, um, is the uh, the grave baggage. Super Bowl three. I still haven't gotten over it. Doesn't help that I won 200, made a bunch of things, a bunch of war. It doesn't mean doesn't mean flip to me. It's losing that jet game. Until this day. They'll have that game on, and I turn away right away. Because I don't want to start, I don't want to have no dreams about it. There's nothing more I can do. I leave football and move on to the future. I've worn the ring four times. I think it's, I, I have it in the pocket of one of my suit jackets, kind of where I hide it in my house. It was not the redemption that we desperately sought for what had gone before. There's almost a sense of um, longing. Um, gosh, if we could just do that again. And, and that's a bunch of old men wasting time. That's what that is. There's something sad about that. Maybe old competitors just never grow out of that zeal for wanting to have done your best when the heat was on, when the crucible was at its most demanding. You just can't help but wish we had done a little better. And I guess we'll go to our grave like that. In speaking with me about that season on the whole, Bill Curry remembers it as a grind. And in listening to his words looking back on how it all played out, it seemed many of the knockdown, dragout affairs they participated in prepared them for the type of game Super Bowl V was going to be. <laughs> it was embarrassing for the offense, but it was a great day for our defense. Um, and that was not our intention. We didn't want to need a great day for the defense, but that's what happened. You had two great defenses on the field and two offenses that were just ineffective. And uh, we, had, we had struggled all year. Uh, Billy Ray Smith was famous for saying, if we make it to the Super Bowl, we're going to definitely win because the other team's going to be laughing so hard when we run on the field. <laughs> because we struggled mightily all the way through that season. I mean, just each game was a gut check. Um, we just barely win here and then barely win there. Then we get blown out by the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, they just ripped us on Monday Night Football. And... Um, there we are in the Super Bowl, and all we had to do was hang on to the ball, play well offensively, and we knew we would win because our offense, our defense, and our special teams were so excellent. Well, the special teams turned the ball over, and the defense just dominated the game, and that's why we won. And for, for those of us on offense, we just had to go in the locker room and go hug the defense and say, thanks, guys. 
sorry. Uh, great job. While it's somewhat sad to hear some of these prominent players discuss Super Bowl V as bittersweet, it's almost more poetic that it played out like it did. The rock-solid defense led by the stellar play of Mike Curtis and Bubba Smith doing everything they could to drag along an offense piloted by the aging Unitas on his last legs, and his understudy in moral who wasn't a spring chicken either. That they feel this way is perhaps a sign that sports, like art, are something we can't arbitrarily assign meaning to based on how things play out on a scoreboard. Maybe it's a symbol the idea of achieving redemption is merely another form of living in the past, when you should be focused on your here and now. But regardless of their thoughts on that game, and not giving that feeling to them, we all know there's both some truth and some falsity in that idea. Jack Gilden, a dyed-in-the-wool cult fan at that time, looks back on Super Bowl V not as any sort of redemption for Super Bowl III, but rather the culmination of an entire story that began with Shula's hiring and was marked by an inability to get it done year after year over the course of the 60s, not just 68. Well, I mean, I think you, you are summing it up correctly. So I think that that team and that game kind of get downgraded by history because of the errors in, in the game. But in reality, uh, that was a really excellent football team. And, um, and uh, they, I think they lost two, only two games all year. I mean, think about this. The very, you know, Unitas and Shula had the best team in football all those years but couldn't win the title. Then the second that Shula leaves for Miami – Baltimore wins the Super Bowl that first season, and uh, and then Miami goes to the Super Bowl for the next three seasons in a row, wins two of them, and has the undefeated season. So, you know, that to me was a very big indicator that, that there was a chemistry problem on the Colts with Shul and Unitas. But uh, that 1970s football, that 1970 Colts team was a damn good team with a great defense and uh, a very historic team. They beat the Oakland Raiders in the first ever AFC championship game in Baltimore. And, um, you know, I, I mean, it was just a sign, you know, like Colts dominance could have gone on for, you know, another decade. They could have dominated the seventies, like they did the sixties and the fifties, but they, um, you know, things changed after that. But the team that came into the seventies was great. And very few people know this, but the, um, but the uh, Colts' defense in 1971, go look it up. It's, it's as good or better than the Ravens' 2000 defense. Statistically speaking, I think they gave up less points per game than, than the 2000 Ravens. He does, however, think it's fair to contextualize Super Bowl V against Super Bowl III, something that was naturally going to happen anyway. It's fair because it was such a gigantic event, you know. I mean, for the NFL and for the Jets, I mean, to this day, the Jets' whole existence you know, surrounds that one game and, and that one player. You know, I mean, they have really done nothing with the rest of their their franchise life but, but that one day, and it was gigantic, you know. And uh, the league itself, it was, you know, you talk about the importance of the 58 championship game, you know, it's, it's almost like the rebirth of the league was the, was the Super Bowl three, you know. But, and for Baltimore and for the Colts, it was a cataclysm, you know. It was... Uh, it was like the infidel storming the temple, you know, it was, it was, it was an unbelievable uh, disaster that they never got over. So they say they couldn't enjoy, you know, like I, I saw that too, Bubba Smith. Well, I couldn't really enjoy it because I still thinking about the, the ring I should have had. Well, maybe, but that 1970 team was a damn good team. Great receivers, a greatest quarterback who ever lived and a defense that was a crusher. Whether they felt or feel a sense of pride, relief, or melancholy looking back on Super Bowl V, one sports motto that will always hold true is that banners fly forever. 
On the backs of their strong defense, Johnny Unitas and Don McCafferty had gotten it done. Carol Rosenblum would be awarded his first Super Bowl ring, and the Colts their first significant championship since 11 years earlier in 1959. Amidst a sour press corps, discontented fans, and a dilapidated stadium, things were still somewhat tumultuous in Charm City. But on that day, January 17, 1971, a kick by Jim O'Brien gave them something that would never and can never be taken away from them. Immortality as Super Bowl champions. Baltimore had finally done it. After over a decade of riding the wave of highly successful teams to the desolate shores of unfulfilled championship promise, they had a ring to show for what they had gone through in those years. Johnny Unitas returned to where he belonged at the top of the heap, and even if it was on his last legs in a game he wasn't able to finish out, the greatest player of all time had added a third ring to his already Hall of Fame caliber resume. Even if Unitas would be on his way out sooner rather than later, the hiring of Don McCafferty, which had proved to be a stroke of brilliance, the bringer of peace to what had been a toxic organization, and hopefully the harbinger of many great things to come in Baltimore over however many of the following years. With a strong defense and Unitas and McCafferty returning for 1971, it stood to reason that they could again have some success that season. And they would. But it was something that would happen at the end of that season, not on the field, but off of it, that was so massive uncertainty about the future of the franchise moving forward. It began three years prior, in 1968. Carol Rosenblum by that point was royalty among a group of NFL owners who all fancied themselves the smartest guys in the room and extremely successful due to their own machinations, though even then you could probably point to at least a handful of guys that were born comfortably onto third base. Carol got along with many of them, others not so much. Joe Robbie of the Dolphins would be one example in the latter category, a guy Rosenblum wouldn't so much as speak to, let alone be friendly with after he swiped Shula from Baltimore right under Rosenblum's nose. But one guy that he did get on quite well with was the owner of the Los Angeles Rams at the time, Dan Reeves. Like Carroll, Reeves was an old money East Coaster, born to European immigrants in New York at the turn of the century. Reeves' parents grew a modest fruit stand business into a bustling grocery store chain that was acquired by Safeway Foods. And thanks to their success, young Dan was able to pursue his dream of sports ownership, purchasing the Cleveland Rams in 1941 in an ownership group that included a few of his other wealthy friends. After a few years realizing the frigid shores of Cleveland weren't going to be for him, he traded it for the sunny shores of Los Angeles, California, making his now Los Angeles Rams the first major professional sports franchise on the Pacific Coast. With money and travel logistics making this a somewhat difficult maneuver to pull off at the time, that was significant, and Reeves certainly capitalized. Having already won an NFL championship in 1945, they again won one in L.A. in 1951, making Reeves one of the early successful owners in what was a nascent sport at the time. We now know what the NFL would eventually grow into, and along for the ride, Reeves facilitated the Rams to growing into one of its great franchises in his day. It was over the course of the 1950s and 60s that he would come to know Carol Rosenblum, and the two took to one another as similar personalities in a high-stakes world. They became so close, in fact, that by 1968, Reeves was comfortable confiding in Carol about something that was not only important to him, but that could potentially seriously affect the trajectory of both his and Carroll's life and legacy. The Colts and Rams met for a preseason contest that season, and the old buddies had met up on the field for a pregame chat. Reeves, only in his mid-50s, was stricken with cancer at the time, a sickness that a few years down the line would prove fatal. 
He, of course, didn't know that at that point, but based on the way Legend has what he told Carol Rosenblum that day, he seemed to have a pretty good idea that it was a distinct possibility. A 1972 Sports Illustrated article recounts the interaction. One of the tough things about this business, Reeves said, is when you come to an important game like this against a good friend. You don't like to beat your friends, but you sure as hell don't want to lose. Reeves was quiet for a moment, then said, My number can come up any time now. The Rams are an important franchise, and I don't think my family will want to keep the club after I'm gone. You'll be here a long time after I will, Rosenblum said. You're too mean to go now. Only the good die young. Reeves smiled and went on. I don't think you belong in Baltimore anymore, he said. If I do go before you, I hope you will give serious thought to acquiring this franchise. Admitting he was right in the moment would mean admitting defeat, which Carol Rosenblum would never do, even to his sick friend. He nodded along with what Reeves was saying, but didn't have much to offer then and there. The Colts went on to win the preseason game 28-24, and Carol forgot about the interaction altogether for a while. But despite Rosenblum's dismissiveness, the unfortunate fact was that Reeves was right, both about his eventual prognosis and that Carol's welcoming Charm City was starting to become worn out. It was due to a variety of reasons, chief among them that he was simply outgrowing the place. Though he was born on the streets of the city to two immigrant parents, his foray into sports ownership had turned him into a high roller, who enjoyed the finer things only on offer in places such as New York or Tampa Bay, not a working-class town like Baltimore. Speaking of the finer things, he certainly didn't have that in Memorial Stadium, a hallowed ground thanks to what the Colts had achieved, but otherwise it was only so in name only. There were no luxury boxes for Carroll to entertain his rich friends in, something that was a mainstay of modern stadiums at that point, and a source of embarrassment for a guy who had become a swinging dick in a world full of them. But even outside of that, basic amenities such as intact seating and working plumbing were lacking. Not to mention the Colts weren't the main tenant. That would be the Baltimore Orioles, and their owner, Gerald Hofberger, who feuded with the Colts and Rosenblum over stadium supremacy on more than one occasion. In one instance, the Orioles blocked the Colts from hosting the second-ever Monday night football game in history. Their reasoning? That it would take over 36 hours to reconstruct the pitcher's mound. Later that season, Rosenblum happened upon a Kansas City Chiefs groundskeeper who was rebuilding a mound for the Royals. Upon learning from him that it would only take a few hours to do so, an irate Rosenblum got his lawyer on the phone and drew up a lawsuit against Hofberger and the Orioles, which he would ultimately win. But that didn't matter, as the situation was that Carroll was in a bad spot with Memorial Stadium. At multiple turns, he tried to fix it by requesting improvements or seeking permission to build his own stadium, but to no avail. According to him, he offered up plans for a site in a place like nearby Columbia, Maryland, which were shot down because of concerns about how it would look for Baltimore if the Colts weren't actually playing within city limits. The city fathers didn't want that, Rosenblum said in a Sports Illustrated piece. They wanted the Colts in the city because they thought it would be a knock on Baltimore if we moved out. For years, they made innumerable promises about fixing up the stadium, but nothing happened. At that point, the issues he had with Memorial were further exacerbated by the lack of any initiative to help him get anything done. But the main reason why Reeves was right was a reason that hadn't even reached its zenith yet for Rosenblum and the Colts. The on-field product. Preseason 1968 was when Rosenblum and Reeves had this first fateful conversation. It would of course just be a few short months later, when the peak of frustrations that Rosenblum had with Don Shula in the 1960s up to that point, in inability to win a championship, reached a nuclear reactor-level meltdown with the nightmare of a loss in Super Bowl III, 
The night Joe Namath stunned the Colts and ran off the field, wagging his finger in the air in a poetic triumph of in with the new and out with the old? You have to think that on that night, Carroll's mind wandered back to the otherwise innocuous chat that he'd had with Reeves prior to the year. It was one that would continue to weigh on him for several years as his issues with Baltimore and his feuds with the city leadership and press piled up higher and higher. Even after he got his Super Bowl ring at long last after the 1970 season, it will be something that proved itself to be ingrained in Carroll's psyche, for better and for worse. The 1971 Baltimore Colts are an interesting case study, one that revolves around bringing back essentially the same team from a championship season and seeing if you can repeat based on the same merits. Considering that the 1970 Colts were an aging roster that scraped out wins week after week en route to a Super Bowl victory that was four hours and a mistake-ridden meat grinder, it was a bold strategy indeed. Funny enough, it nearly worked. Operating on the same platoon system at quarterback with Unitas and Morrill subbing in for one another based on who was healthy enough to sling the rock, the Colts consistently won throughout the 71 season and entered the final week of the regular season with a 10-3 record. A victory over the New England Patriots would give them an 11-4 record, good for first place in the AFC East where they resided at the time, along with the Patriots, New York Jets, Buffalo Bills, and Miami Dolphins. But it wasn't to be. New England stunned Baltimore that week in Memorial Stadium in a 21-17 victory, giving the Dolphins, who finished 10-3-1, the division title and made the Colts a fourth-seeded wildcard. As the Colts prepared for the playoffs, they reflected on their season. They had won with a 37-year-old journeyman and a 38-year-old legend. They had won with careful preparation and constant execution. They had won with their feet, their heads, and their bodies. They had won by running, blocking, passing, catching, kicking, and tackling. And they had won with Baltimore tradition at their side in every game. Unitas and Morrill had combined to throw just 10 total touchdowns that season, paltry numbers even for that era. But there was plenty special about what they achieved that year, and it started with their defense, which is one that is statistically among the best of all time. According to Jack Gilden, they surrendered less points per game than the 2000 Ravens and were an absolute crusher. They took stock of what they had and entered the playoffs and a date with the Browns in Cleveland. Don McCafferty had been on staff for the many great clashes these two teams had had throughout the 60s, and maybe due to that, was ready for them in this spot. Thus, when the Colts came to Cleveland for the division playoffs, they had a score to settle with tradition. They had not beaten the Browns since the 1968 NFL Championship. And with Norm Boulash just a spectator, their task was made doubly difficult. But the Colts were used to pressure. They had lived with it and have lived up to it. And as they had done two weeks earlier against Miami, Baltimore played the perfect game. Again, the quick strike from Unitas to his receivers. Again, superb blocking this time for Don Nottingham, who scored two first-half touchdowns and ran for 90 yards. As the Colts' offense again controlled the ball, and with it, the Browns' destiny.
Defensively, the Colts cut off Cleveland's lifeline. Ahead by 14, they forced Nelson to pass often and made a furious attack on his attempt to do so. Rick Volk's second theft ended Cleveland's agony, the final act in the 20-3 victory. It set them up for a second straight trip to the AFC Championship game against a familiar foe in a familiar place. The Miami Dolphins, the division champions over the Colts, had beaten the Chiefs and then made their way to the conference championship as well, which they would be hosting at the Orange Bowl. Don Shula had his fair share of playoff demons with the Colts, and now had a chance to exercise them right then and there. He did so in convincing fashion. The Colts offense couldn't get anything going, and on the strength of intercepting Johnny Unitas three times, the Dolphins won the game 21-0, sending Shula and Miami to their first ever Super Bowl. Baltimore's second straight trip to the big game was denied, and it had to hurt especially bad watching the Dolphins choke it away to the Cowboys in a 24-3 loss, giving Dallas the Super Bowl redemption of their own after losing it the year prior. Whether the Colts believed they would have repeated as champions or not was irrelevant. The 71 season, which had all the promise of the year prior, was over. As good as they were, some concerning signs were afoot. Namely, Unitas' age had unquestionably begun to show by that point and a young successor had not yet been put into place to make a smooth transition into a new era after his was set to end. But that will be a conversation for another day. For the Colts and Baltimore, the most pressing issue on hand was one to do with ownership. On April 15, 1972, Dan Reeves passed away after a lengthy battle with cancer at age 58. His legacy included bringing pro sports to the West Coast, making football mainstream for children at younger ages through programs he set up, the creation of full-time NFL scouting staffs, and being instrumental in helping to make the NFL a viable TV product. It was all of that which had gotten him a 1967 Pro Football Hall of Fame enshrinement. All of that, and of course, his ownership of the Los Angeles Rams. It was around this time, in the early days of 1972, that Carol Rosenblum had indicated that his days in Baltimore would soon be over. Fed up with city leadership over the lack of progress surrounding Memorial Stadium, and at odds with the press over everything from preseason ticket prices to them souring on him due to all that had transpired on the field in the 60s, he felt it was officially time to make his move. If he actually had forgotten about his conversation with Reeves in 1968 about acquiring the Los Angeles Rams, he soon remembered back to it. It was at this point that he was completely at odds with Baltimore leadership, including threatening to move the Colts to Tampa amidst many other public disputes. Thanks to that, and due to the fact that it would likely be necessary in a deal such as this, Carroll acted quickly when Reeves passed. He made it known to the league and Commissioner Pete Rozelle that he intended to acquire the Rams, no matter what that meant for the Colts and Baltimore. As Reeves had predicted, his family had no interest in holding an ownership stake in the Rams. Shortly after his passing, they immediately began looking to sell, and Rosenblum made his interest in purchasing known to both them and Roselle, following last-ditch attempts at getting a new stadium plan drawn up from Baltimore Mayor William Donald Schaefer. Despite how keen Carroll was on making it happen, Roselle was hesitant to simply allow him to make the move. He was especially so when Rosenblum, seeking to appease both the commissioner and Baltimore, suggested that he buy the Rams independently, 
and leave ownership of the Colts in the hands of his son, Steve, who had been within the organization for many years at that point. Roselle immediately shot that down, citing the conflict of interest that could stem from Carroll effectively having ownership interests in two separate franchises. Somewhat stuck between release patterns, Rosenblum was curious about what to do next. In his mind, a straight-up sale of the Colts to then purchase the Rams was out of the question, due to a potential $4.4 million he'd owe in capital gains tax on a cash sale. That wouldn't have been fair to my family, he said after the fact. If something happened to me after the sale, they would have been taxed again on the estate. A tax on a tax. Always shrewd and still determined to not wind up on the losing end of either acquiring the Rams or paying due taxes on it, the wheels began to turn for the man who had built an empire out of a dilapidated denim factory many decades earlier. His solution came from someone whose impact on the Baltimore Colts both then and in the coming years would be incredibly far-reaching. His name was Joe Thomas. It's a nondescript, all-American-sounding name you probably associate with a Hall of Fame left tackle. But in this case, we're talking about a football executive who Rosenblum had a professional relationship with in the early 1970s. Thomas, who had gotten to start with the Colts back in the day, had been working in player personnel with the Dolphins under Joe Robbie since 1966. And after a contract dispute with the Dolphins organization, he resigned after the 72 season. Perhaps as another attempt at a screw you to Robbie and Don Shula, Rosenblum touched base with Thomas to see if there was anything he could do to help him. Their talks didn't result in anything material for either party. That is, until Carroll was looking for a creative way to make a move for the Rams. It was Thomas's relationship with two men, named Willard Keeland and Clem Ryan, that got the ball rolling. Keeland and Ryan had also been squeezed out of the Dolphins organization by Robbie, and Thomas, having kept in contact with them, knew they were looking to put together an ownership group to potentially buy a team. Roselle had gotten wind of all this and suggested Carroll talk with Thomas to see if he could put them in touch. Thomas did just that, and as the summer rolled around, it appeared that a deal was almost in place. Keeland and Ryan were to buy the Los Angeles Rams, and in an unprecedented move, trade the organization and all of its assets to Carroll Rosenblum for ownership of the Baltimore Colts. As the negotiations were close to being finalized, one minute issue arose. Neither Keeland or Ryan had the money required to get it done. They were about $5 million short, and in a pinch, they'd need a third backer to enter the fold and provide it for them. Joe Thomas knew just the guy, a friend of his from Chicago who had made a fortune in the air conditioning business and would likely help push the deal over the goal line. When the group met with this man in a New York City restaurant to see if they could get him involved in the deal, and more importantly, if he had the money to even do so to begin with, his answer was simple. I could have. That wound up being the case, and more. Eventually, Keeland and Ryan backed out of the deal completely, leaving Carroll with his last man who had just entered the fold to negotiate with for a trade of the two franchises. All told, it would take $19 million to purchase the Rams and make the swap. The man who said he, quote, could have the original asking price of $5 million paid the 19 without a second thought, and on July 13th, 1972, he became the sole owner of the Baltimore Colts after the trade was complete. That man's name was Robert Ursay. It was a tax scheme. Rosenblum wanted to get out of Baltimore. He was trying to build a new stadium, and they kept stymieing him. He, he was going to pay for it himself. So Baltimore made significant mistakes with him, and uh, 
they wouldn't let him build his new stadium. And I think even Camden Yards was one of the possibilities that he was looking at for a new stadium. Memorial Stadium, we all loved it. You're too young to remember it. But, you know, from anyone from my generation and older, I, I mean, it was beloved. It was a, it was so charming. And there were so many great things that happened there. But, but it was a dump. You know, it had a significant structural problems. And it really was, uh, was outmoded. So, you know, they wouldn't, they, they really were frustrating him. And, you know, and then there was tension between Rosenblum and the fans over preseason attendance and things like that. So he was even threatening to move the franchise and, uh, but which was something he didn't really want to do, but he was trying to get his way. They wouldn't give him his way no matter what he said or did. So he wanted out and he had saw a chance to get the, the Rams. He saw Ursay as a rube and he took him. And the biggest thing about the, the, the trade of the Rams for the Colts was is it allowed Rosenblum to divest himself of the Colts plus acquire the Rams with no tax ramifications, even though he had acquired the Colts for $21,000, and now he had an asset there that was worth many millions. So I think uh, Ursay had just bought the Rams for the highest price that anybody had ever paid for a professional sports team and then traded them to uh, Rosenblum for the Colts. It was an unbelievably shady deal. And just as quickly as this man named Ursay was in, Carol Rosenblum was suddenly out. After 65 years of life, much of which was associated with Baltimore where he was born, and the state of Maryland at large, he was officially trading his biggest asset, and the one remaining tangible sign that he had a connection with the place, for manifest destiny out in the city of angels. For many, including probably him for much of his life, the idea that he would ditch the Colts seemed insane. He had come out of early retirement and inherited the bones of a dead franchise from Texas in the early 50s, when the NFL wasn't much more than an obscure side act for Major League Baseball, and in turn, built the franchise whose rising tide lifted the boats of the rest of the league, and propelled the sport to a prominence that's somehow still growing in the modern era. In hiring Weeb Eubank, he had facilitated the discovery of Johnny Unitas, to this day the most important player in the history of the game, and won two championships to close out the 1950s one of which brought the sport to the forefront of national television as the nation watched his team win the first overtime game in 1958. Despite a relationship that had gone sour with Don Shula, he was the owner to take a chance on the coach who would go on to become an all-time great, and even after having just won a Super Bowl the year prior and exiting stage left at a relatively perfect time, many important figures in the organization were sad to see Rosenblum leave. Said Mike Curtis of the situation, I hate to see Carroll go. He was a damn good owner. It wasn't the coaches who made Baltimore a winner for 14 years. Rosenblum's legacy goes beyond more than what the Colts achieved on the field under his leadership, but of the culture he created. This day and age, the term family is thrown around a lot when it comes to sports franchises, but he was the first one to popularize it back in his time running the Colts. He made it a point to have good relationships with all of his players and to set them up well for life after football, which isn't guaranteed to be a success for players this day and age, much less at the time when it was barely enough to make a living off of for some players. He was a successful and affable but also flawed man, who was proud to a fault and adamant in his own self-reliance, even when a veneer of humility was actually the smart play. But above all, he played the role of a sports owner extremely well, emotional about it as the artistic side of sports engenders, and also calculating and decisive about the pursuit when it called for that, which it did often in his case. He best sums up his feelings on all this and provides some insight into how he so well navigated this world in a 1965 Sports Illustrated profile written on him. 
After the first year in football, I found that all of the things I've ever done, this is the thing, Rosenblum says. There is nothing more rewarding. You have everything wrapped up in one bundle. You meet much nicer people than you do in business. You meet the public and you must learn to look out for them. There's no place where your word is more your bond than in sports. You'd never find 14 men who deal as fairly with one another as the 14 owners in the National Football League, particularly after some of the things that have gone on in business or on Wall Street. You play a part in the lives of young men and you help them grow. And then every Sunday, you have the great pleasure of dying. That last bit isn't what you would call an exceptionally common turn of phrase, but it's one that you can immediately understand if you do any research on Rosenblum's Sunday experience in the owner's box. Following the game intently, cheering on his guys, and living and dying with every single play. Both then and now, we could use more owners like that in sports. People with the business savvy to operate efficiently, and also the unbridled emotional investment to keep them engaged in something that is, at its essence, a game. He would pass away seven years later at the age of 72, still very much invested in the goings-on with the Rams, trying intently to both carry on the legacy of Dan Reeves and continue to carve out his own in the city he had chosen to call his new home. Legacy is a complicated thing, though, and as Carroll for the rest of his life and every other cult sympathizer would soon learn, leaving the legacy of something legendary that you built in the hands of someone else can be an exceptionally dicey proposition. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Tune in next Monday for more and check me out on Twitter at Jake Luke or at Podcast Beatdown and check out BaltimoreBeatdown.com for more info as we move forward.